Uh, we are doing the basics, the last session, and this one is going to be on the topic of spiritual disciplines. And so for that, I would like to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you guys have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll be in verse 24 and following of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run to obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to get a perishable crown, but we one that is imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way not without aim, and I box in such a way, not as one who is just beating the air. But I discipline my body, making it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I would not disqualify myself. Paul writes this as part of a long letter to the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian church struggles with many things. But one of the things Paul is arguing for in this section of 1 Corinthians is that discipline, spiritual discipline, self-discipline, is something that the mature Christian ought to strive for. He uses himself as a model of what that ought to look like. And so there's a couple of things we're going to try to extract from this text and keeping in line with the whole series we've been doing on just basics of the Christian faith. We're not going to go too theologically deep, not too down into a rabbit hole, but stay at the basic level of what does it mean for a Christian to practice spiritual disciplines in their life? And what does it mean for a Christian to just have discipline within their life. Discipline being a virtue, something that we are called to as believers. Now you see Paul here in the text, uh, he calls for the model of an athlete who has self-control, and he even says an interesting phrase there in verse 25. Uh, he says that every athlete exercises self-control in everything, or all athletes exercise self-control in all things. It seems like a strange thing because, you know, we think of modern athletes today, and they don't necessarily strike us as virtues of uh, people who have self-control, right? They party, they drink, they do all kinds of things to celebrate victories. But the, the principle of what Paul's getting at in, in his day in the first century culture, athletes were put on strict diets, they were put on strict training regimens. They lived different from the rest of the people in the culture because they had a purpose and a task for which they were working towards. Their bodies was, was their tool that they would use to, to run races, to compete. And so Paul's using athletes as an example of people who exercise discipline and discipline that would be recognizable to a large audience. Uh, we might think of uh, maybe not just any athlete in the world, but maybe more specifically about Olympians, those who discipline themselves for year over year over year so they can have one shot to compete at, on the world stage among the best of the best of the best. You might think about, uh, for example, female gymnasts who from a very early age will discipline their bodies for the purpose of obtaining uh, notoriety and progress and ultimately uh, gold medals in their sport and in their uh, field of expertise. These athletes exercise self-control. This is what Paul's putting into our minds. Then, then we can take a step back and ask the question, what purpose uh, does Paul argue for? Why does he give athletes as an example, and what is that he put that on the ground as? And in 1 Corinthians, you'll see he lands the plane in verse 27. Well, really, uh, in verse 26, he gives the negative. In verse 27, he gives the positive. Verse 26, he says, I don't run in such a way without aim, or I don't box the air in such a way, or I don't box in such a way as one who simply beats at the air. His, his point is, he doesn't run aimlessly and he doesn't box aimlessly. 
he does so uh, while running to finish the prize, or we might say he boxes as one who is going to hit something, hit a target. Uh, he disciplines his body, making it his slave, so that, and this is the Christian application of these ideas, after I preach to others, after I proclaim this message of freedom and grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ to others, I would not turn and disqualify myself from this aim. Now, Paul speaks uh, as a, a preacher, a minister, an apostle, one who goes to plant churches, so certainly it's important for him not to disqualify himself after he proclaims the gospel of grace. Think about the scandal that that would be. He plants the church in Corinth. He calls them out for their sin and their, their licentiousness in that culture. And then, you know, six months later, a scandal breaks out and we find out about Paul and all of the things that he has done wrong and he's not really ever given up his sinful ways. Paul's saying he's not doing that. He's disciplining his body so that he does not fall in that kind of a way. Well, that's the same thing Paul, as a model, calls you and I to, to say that when we share the gospel with people, we're sharing the message of hope, the gospel of grace, but we don't do that and then fail to discipline ourselves lest months, weeks, years later, it be found out that we have disqualified ourselves from the testimony which we were given. This is the role of discipline in the Christian life, not as a meriting of salvation, but as a testimony to the proof that what we actually teach and preach and believe is real, it is true. We might think about it this way, that all of the disciplines we're gonna go through now, well, we're just gonna go through a short list of the many disciplines which we can talk about, they all serve the purpose of keeping us in the fight and keeping our testimony fresh, evergreen, so that when we minister to others, our testimony is sound for years on end. It is in the neglect of discipline that the Western church falls on hard times and pastors and ministers and members of the church fall on hard times. It is through the uh, many divorces and the adulterous affairs and the financial scandals and all manner of sinful endeavors that the Western church brings much harm to its own witness. And so the disciplines are a godly ordained means of avoiding that kind of thing. So then what are some of the disciplines which we can talk about? There have been books written on the topic, most notably Don Whitney's Personal Spiritual Disciplines of the Godly Life, in which he argues for many disciplines. We've talked a little bit about some of them, but in this time, I want to talk about disciplines that I think most help us stave off the influence of the world and temptation. And so I'm going to focus just on four of them, prayer, fasting, our intake of information from the world, and then silence and solitude. So firstly, prayer. Prayer is a discipline which you might all know uh, about because Christians talk about prayer all the time. We're supposed to be praying. We're supposed to be not just reading God's word, but communing with God in prayer. How does prayer help us to fight off sin? Prayer helps us to fight off sin by one, being a direct means of worshipfully communicating with God to confess all the goodness and grace that he has given to us. So it reminds us of God's goodness, thus restraining our evil. But also prayer is the means by which we go to God in confession of sin. So if you think about one of the things that prevents us from engaging in ongoing sin, ongoing disobedience, ongoing lack of discipline, one of the things that prevents us from going there is confessing our sin as soon as it comes to light. As soon as we sin, if we confess that sin through prayer, well, now it has no, no guilt, no hold, no shame over us, and therefore we can go free where we don't let it snowball into something bigger than it otherwise would be. So prayer is a means by which we regularly purge ourselves of sin which is left unconfessed. So regular prayer is a means of disciplining ourselves. Regular prayer also is a means of asking God for the grace to discipline ourselves. When you wake up in the morning and you think about all that you have to do, perhaps you think about reading the word, studying, 
fellowshipping with other individuals, all of the things which you need to accomplish. One of the things that prayer ought to function as in this, in this uh, let's say, regular lifestyle of the Christian is asking God for the grace to do the things which are on our to-do list, on our checklist. If we have spiritual goals, such as growing in grace, growing in patience, uh, how are we achieving those goals if we're not asking for help in prayer for God to assist us and give us grace to grow in those ways? So prayer is a, a discipline which we ought to engage in, which kind of supercharges, if you'd like to think about it that way, every other discipline which we engage in as Christians. Similarly, uh, and one of the things that I think goes right along with this is fasting. Fasting always is coupled with prayer in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. It's always coupled with either mournful prayer or worshipful prayer. Fasting is a means of intensifying our desires. When you think about what you're doing in fasting is you're going without food. So as to intensify your awareness of the fact that you're hungry, and that should drive you to recognizing you're also hungry for God and for his word, for fellowship for, with him, for, for all, all manner of things. The hunger that you feel in fasting is something that drives you to a hunger for God and a fellowship with God in prayer. Now, I think the reason I want to bring fasting into this part of the conversation is because fasting requires a denial of what is normally craved by the body, food. And when you fight off those temptations, those cravings at the period of time in which you're fasting, one of the things you're telling yourself is that your body does not run your person. Your, your cravings don't run who you are. So fasting is a means by which we can regularly practice discipline over our bodies in a way that sets us up for the kind of success and kind of discipline you would need. Let's say if you struggle with sexual sin, if you already know what it is to stave off cravings and temptations in one lane, you are set up for success to do that in another lane as well. So fasting is a means by which we can regularly practice the self-denial of things which are otherwise good for us. Fasting is not, uh, fasting we are not going apart from sinful things. Fasting we are with, uh, with going good food, which is healthy for us. But it sets us up as a regular discipline for success in other areas of life. Namely, anytime we are called to deny ourselves of some physical craving which we might have. And sin often manifests itself in that kind of physical bodily felt way. You know, think about the sin of gluttony. Uh, if you know what it is to regularly go without food, you will struggle much less with gluttony. If you know what it is to go without uh, indulging every craving, you can go without coveting much more easily than if you do not regularly practice self-denial. So fasting and prayer kind of go hand in hand in this way. Then comes the spiritual discipline of, well, I would call this intake of information. Don Whitney, in his book, has a whole chapter set aside to, well, Christians cultivating the reading and the studying of good information. And you might ask the question, how does this have to do with spiritual disciplines such as not disqualifying ourselves and our testimony? One of the greatest dangers to our Christian witness is later apostasy in life, apostasy that happens after we have originally claimed Christ and made a profession of faith. And one of the most common ways, especially in the West, where that happens is a Christian who has a shallow belief in God, a poor understanding of faith, a poor understanding of really what they believe, and they stay there their whole Christian walk, and then they meet someone down the line who knows, what, uh, who knows better than them the Bible, who knows better than them the scriptures, who knows better than them what they believe or profess to believe, and can disprove all of it or seemingly disprove all of it. And then Christians go that way and abandon faith, and all of a sudden they, they think that Everything has been undone for them. Well, one of the ways Christians ought to engage in 
the preventing of this in their life is by disciplining themselves to learn good information over the course of their Christian life. That does not mean that as a Christian you need to go get a PhD in order to be some profound lecturer in a university. No, you just need to have regular access to information so that when you find hard questions in your life, you actually know where to go to answer those questions. Most notably, as it relates to personal spiritual disciplines, there are many false teachings in the church today which kind of put the grace of God and the craving of whatever sin you want to engage in side by side where you can mutually engage in both somehow. And so a, a learned Christian who has disciplined themselves in true reading of information would recognize that as a false teaching right on its face and would not be tempted by that in the way a, a novel and a young Christian would be. And so as Christians, we engage in a regular study of, well, good theology. We, we read good books. We get good book recommendations from others. Sometimes, uh, especially in the age of podcasts, we listen to good podcast series. We regularly steward our information in such a way that it sets us up for success when it comes to self discipline. Most notably, especially as it comes with information in the world, that might mean we neglect intaking information which would not set us up for that kind of success. I'm thinking most notably of music or media which glorifies sex and sexuality in a carnal kind of way. Uh, As Christians, what we intake speaks volumes about what we value. And if we regularly discipline ourselves to laugh at crude jokes, we will not be so offended by sex and sexual perversion when we see it in our life. And so too, we should regularly stave off false beliefs about uh, human sexuality, for example, as that's the one that really rises to the front in culture. But really, any kind of indulgence in sexual perversion uh, or sinful perversion of any kind, uh, we can go a long ways in, in failing, in, in not intaking bad media when it comes to looking at those things. The media saturates our mind and gets us used to sin, and thus it becomes easier for us to actually engage in that kind of sin. So by not even intaking that media to begin with, we really do set ourselves up for success. And then the last of these disciplines that I want to talk about today is silence and solitude. And this one goes hand in hand, just like fasting and prayer go hand in hand. Information intake and silence and solitude go hand in hand. Because one of the greatest dangers for our personal walk with the Lord today is the fact that we can always be on with an intake of media and input of information at all points in time in our life if we want to. You can wake up in the morning and the first thing you can do is listen to music. You can listen to a podcast. You can go throughout your whole day always listening to and intaking stuff and never having a time of quiet contemplation, of quiet thought, of self-reflection. This does not mean, silence and solitude does not mean we navel gaze, but what silence and solitude forces us to do is to think, to commune with God, and, and ultimately to be alone with ourselves and our thoughts and really alone with God in such a way that we can actually pray clearly. Silence and solitude goes hand in hand with not only the rejecting of an information stream, but it also goes hand in hand with prayer. So often our prayer lives are tainted by the fact that five seconds before we knelt down to pray or closed our eyes to pray, we were reading a text or we had gotten a notification or we just turned off from work. And that does tend to clutter our mind in a kind of way. What silence and solitude does, it really sets up a quiet, kind of clean slate of prayer where we can just be alone. I would recommend, uh, if you're thinking about this, uh, as a regular practice at some time in the week, maybe it's a, a, a regular morning practice, but as the first thing that you do as a habit of silence and solitude, you don't go to talk to someone, you don't check your phone for notifications. A good Christian habit in this, in this regard 
we would just start with your Bible and prayer with the Lord uh, as a means of saying, I want to hear nothing else but the voice of God in my life for what I need for today. It is, it is a way of disciplining ourselves to quietly think through our lives, intentionally so, so we are not just going to and fro with whatever our phones tell us we should pay attention to or the news tells us to pay attention to or whatever we want to pay attention to. There's this uh, huge debate right now as it's going on in the world of uh, TikTok with the algorithm about, well, the, the algorithm really tells you what you're watching. You don't, you're not really in control of what you're getting access to. You just kind of scroll through and whatever the computer says look at, that's whatever you're looking at next. Now, the algorithm is informed, it learns, it adapts, but it's designed to tell you what's up next and what to entertain you. As Christians, we, we want to reject the idea that we're leaving our information diet up to something else besides ourselves. Part of being a disciplined person is to be intentional with our lives, and silence and solitude sets us up for such intentional kinds of living. Now, as this all relates to, let's say, going back to the text of what Paul is arguing for here, he is arguing specifically for self-discipline as it relates to sin so that he does not disqualify himself and his testimony. And as Christians, we set ourselves up for that kind of success, not in the moment that we face temptation, not in the moment that we are faced with a decision to sin or not to sin, but we set ourselves up for success in those moments, years and months before the sin actually falls at our doorstep. It is a resolute desire to not bow the knee to your own desires that sets you, that sets you up to be successful when you are faced with temptation. It is the regular memorization of scripture, meditation on God's word that sets you up for success when you're confronted with, with any kind of sinful temptation. Paul's point here is that his whole life is run in such a way that whenever sin engages him or whenever he is met with temptation, he can simply dismiss it out of hand because he is regularly training himself so that whenever the moment arises, he is battle ready. He's always ready to go. So often we think about temptation as at the moment that the sin faces us, that is when we have to decide to sin or not to sin. But Paul's talking about a whole lifestyle that is oriented in such a way where you begin to make sin more and more impossible for yourself. You begin to make sin more and more of a foreign thing where your momentum is outside of the trajectory of sin and sin would be a deviation from what you're normally doing. If he was running his race without aim, well then sin doesn't present any kind of deviation from that path because he's already running without aim. But because he runs with an aim, and sin is off that path, he can recognize sin more, more clearly. Similarly, when he disciplines himself by not just beating randomly at the air, he, he, knows, he knows when he's on target and off target because he actually has a target that he's aiming for. So it is with, with Christians in our, in our walks. If we have goals, if we have these targets, if we have these disciplines in our life, it tells us very readily how on track we are for success so that we are not really blindsided by sin. We kind of can see it coming years ahead of time often. It is, it is most often the case that huge falls into sin are set up first and foremost by a temporary lifestyle choice, a temporary habit modification that sets you, you up years down the line for a snowball effect into a massive kind of failure. Uh, one of the, Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Purity Principle. And in that book, one of the things he says is that it is never... Uh, the case, as, despite what the media will tell you, it's never the case where someone, you know, wakes up one, one morning and decides they're going to they're gonna have an affair uh, with their, on their spouse. They're going to cheat on their significant other. That doesn't just happen one morning. You roll out of bed and decide that. There's a kind of lifestyle trajectory trend you need to regularly engage with 
over the course of years and months before that can actually become a concrete reality in someone's life. The letting down of, uh, of certain guards, the uh, blending of emotional intimacy, and ultimately that culminates in uh, this kind of cataclysmic event that's easy to recognize. But it never, it, that's not really where the sin starts. The sin starts way downstream into, in the foolishness. So spiritual disciplines set us, up, set us up on a trajectory away from sin where we actually can say with confidence, we are living our lives in such a way where we will not be disqualified. We are living our lives in such a way that the people we disciple today and the people we're engaged in discipleship with are not going to look at us five years from now and say, wow, look at where they've gone all the way off track. We're not going to, where we are preventing ourselves from being a blight on the name of, of Christ. That's really what spiritual disciplines are about. We discipline ourselves so as not to bring shame or reproach upon the church and upon God and to bring reproach upon any other Christian who is about the work of ministry. Think about how hard it is for you when someone, some major Christian figure in the world fails and, and falls into sin and how much work it now is for you to have to explain to someone that that's an that's a aberrant kind of trajectory away from the Christian faith. And now think about how you can set up yourself for success and the people who come after you in the discipleship of people's lives by yourself not falling into sin. By doing that, you're already taking a massive step forward from what most of the Western church struggles with. And you're setting yourself up, not, not you right now, but maybe a generation from now, you're setting your children up for success. For the people they engage with in culture, they will be able to look at the lifestyle of parents and family and the trajectory of a whole church, and they will be able to say there's something different about these people than culture, and it adds to the testimony of faith. All of this is done not just by vain spirituality, but by spirituality exercised in the disciplines that Christians ought to practice. Let me close this in a word of prayer, and then we can go to some discussion. Our God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we recognize that we are a people who fall so short of your glory, who fall so short in every area of life. Uh, we engage often, more often than we'd like to admit in sin. And yet, Lord, you have given us means of grace, means of disciplining ourselves, that we can walk in uh, today, tomorrow, this moment, the kinds of habits that will set us up for success in the future where we will build a momentum away from our bodies and away from our fleshly entrapments. And we will grow in grace and in maturity. And we can say with confidence here, as Paul does, so that we would not be disqualified. Lord, we pray for your grace as we endeavor to do just that, recognizing that even if we have success in these areas, it will be because of your grace manifest in our lives and not really because of our own maturity, our own self-discipline. Uh, let the grace and, and the, the praise and the glory always go to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.